Hello everyone, Tony here. It's hard to believe, but Dwayne and I started this podcast almost one year ago. To date, we have published over 30 episodes, have had the show downloaded over 1,200 times, and have reached eight different countries. Through it all, we've had a great time, telling and hearing stories, and diving deep into the world of human forestry. As with many projects like this, it starts as a totally different idea and morphs itself into its own entity. Treeactions has grown and will continue to. Dwayne and I are always looking for new ways to connect and grow the community. We have opened a Patreon page, which can be found by searching for Treeactions on the Patreon website or app. A link is also posted in the show notes. Recording, producing, and publishing a podcast does not come free. And while this is truly a labor of love, and access to the podcast will always be free, we wanted to develop a way for those of you who wish to support the show to do so. For those that support the show through Patreon, you will get access to the episodes a week earlier and be able to comment should you choose. In the future, we develop more content available only on Patreon. I want to thank you all for listening and for all of you who have reached out to express your appreciation for the show. It really does mean the world to us. All right. Well, welcome, everybody, to another episode of Tree Actions, the Human Forestry Podcast. With my co-host, Tony Tressoff, as always, uh, behind the scenes, but very much a part of the scene. And joining us today is none other than Johnny Quartier. And uh, Johnny, we always ask everybody a bit as a way to kind of get the juices flowing, as they say, what their first, and, and this is the question for you, what was your first, your first memory where you, that you connect yourself to, to a tree or to trees? Where, where did, what, what resonates or what comes up for you when, when, when you think back to the very first time? The reason it's taken me a minute is because it's like, as I, as I find a memory, it just brings up one before and then one before, and then before you know it, you know, I'm two years old. Yeah, that's okay. Um, I think the first time where it really resonated would have been uh, after, let's see. So my parents split up when I was five and then my dad ended up on an acreage and on that acreage, we, let's see, I can picture it. Behind the house, we used to have some goats and near all those goats were a whole bunch of willows and poplars around the fire pit and stuff like that. And I do seem to remember we ended up with a stray cat. <laughs> yeah. And now I can see the cat and I can remember his name and stuff. But I used to just escape to the trees because my, uh, my upbringing was interesting to say the least. So I would, I would find a pet, be it a cat or a chicken or a dog or whatever. And then I'd go and hit the yard and I'd spend, I mean, my whole life was just outside roaming around and imagining cool stuff. So I would climb trees with the cat or teach the dogs how to climb trees a little bit with me and stuff. And I do remember just, you know, being at a young age, I'm, I'm thinking I would have been maybe about eight at the time, but I found myself climbing around in a lot of trees. And I mean, like all kids climb trees, but for me, mm-hmm. they sort of delivered a consistent, um, feeling, I guess, not necessarily an escape, but just a cool place that I could go to. And that hasn't really changed if I'm honest. <laughs> right. a, a kind of, a kind of respite. Yeah. 
Yeah, you could say that. It's like a return to a familiar place. So do you do you think that it was something that you that even maybe perhaps was imparted energetically, like mystically almost or, or soulfully, that there's that element to trees for you or, or was it just being outside or you know, what do you think about that? I think that as you grow in life, your awareness, if you allow it to, kind of expands. So, I mean, for me to say that it was some, you know, deeper connection at that age, it definitely wasn't at that time. But then, of course, now when you look back, hindsight gives you a little bit of clarity. Um, I would just say, like being in a forest or amongst the trees or in and around them, always felt kind of right, I guess, fail safe, even though obviously it's not like wandering around in the woods at dark is not <laughs> safe, but it just felt familiar, I guess, or maybe comforting or something like that. And then now knowing what I know and having the experiences that I've had, I think that it's very clear uh, to those of us that spend enough time around there, like your awareness broadens and then you start to really understand things at a deeper level. And I would say now there's definitely a psycho spiritual connection that I have to them. Um, but again, like with all those things, it's such an ethereal thing. It's hard to really like put your finger on it, you know? Yeah, I do know. I, you know, and I, I guess it sort of does come with age. I find it fascinating, the topic, you know, and obviously it's one of the impetuses for the, for the podcast, but, uh, you know, I think as young, at, at a very young age, we are that innocence, I guess we're often called. And, you know, uh, the four agreement books they talk about how at, at a young age that we're we don't we're not veiled or separated from that 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 other world the the, the ethereal spiritual realm which i think trees are a part of personally but we come back to that later in life and and that's partly why i was asking the question but no absolutely i think there is a uh you know, there's something that's imparted energetically. And as we know, you know, research being done, you know, that the chemicals released terpenes and so on by the trees that actually do calm our nervous system. So there's, there's even, you know, physiological, biological evidence to the, to the, for the reasons for it. But I think it's, it's more than that too. Yeah, I think so too. Um, and like, I mean, there was a time where gravity was unexplainable, right? There was a time when the seasons were dictated by the sacrifices that you made. And then we, you know, we learn more and then we realize that, you know, science can back up certain aspects of what we didn't understand at the time, you know, and I guess just to relate that back, there is a tangible feeling, especially once you become familiar with trees that you get when you're around them. It's like you're getting to know somebody or you're, you bump into somebody who you haven't seen in a long time, but you pick it up right where you left off. It's like that, except you had that like long before you were here. I guess is another way that I sometimes think about it. Actually, one of like, you know, I'm not a religious guy, but we had the opportunity to climb uh, some giant sequoias in California. And I vividly remember being like at the top of a nearly 300 foot tall tree thinking like, oh, there's a, there's a wisdom here. You know what I mean? That I'm probably not really ready to understand, but it's here and I can feel it and there's something yeah. to it. Yeah. And what was so cool yeah, about that trip yeah. is I spent a lot of time when we weren't doing what we were there to do, just walking around the forest with my friends who were like relatively, I guess you could say like uninitiated, like they weren't 
really interested in forestry. They were interested in like sports and things like that. So as we walked around and I explained like, this is a sugar pine and this is how you can tell. And this is, you know, and then cool facts about giant sequoia and have a look at the crown of that tree. Do you see why it's rounded? There's reasons for that. And then I pointed down at morale mushrooms that were popping up. And I had this like impromptu guided forest tour that I led in the middle of this place where up until then I'd basically never been. And I just remember finishing that day out and like, we were all really nervous because like what we were there to do was like kind of scary, but like we all went to like, we're hanging out at the house and all we're doing is just like getting our hippie nerd on, you know, like talking about trees and <laughs> nature and stuff. And yeah, it's neat. Yeah. It's such a multi multifaceted experience to spend as much intimate time around trees that, you know, guys like me and you and Tony and others get to, you know. Yeah. Hey, um, you know, your, 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 your journey Play, you know, with animals and in the trees as a young lad. When did it transition into a, a working type thing for you? Like your, you know, when did you find yourself actually earning money and and being part of the the arboriculture industry? How did that happen? Yeah, so um, you know, coming up in my early, well, I guess you know, through my eleven, twelves, and then into my early teens, um, I was completely obsessed with mountain biking. So I ended up uh, working at a bike shop. And I was working at a bike shop and I vividly remember one day, it was a spring day, I would have been about 14 years old. And my dad called me and said, look, you know, I got a job on a tree crew and a little bit of context, like my dad spent 30 plus years cleaning chicken processing plants. Like that was my first job, you know, like not great. And then he was cleaning trucks and he was all (laughs) over the place. And it, it, you know, it was, it was sort of an unstable situation, but I do remember something about that phone call kind of rang true because my dad was excited. Like, like he was like, John boy, that's what he calls me. He's like, like I got a job on a tree crew and there's these guys climbing trees and they sure make it look cool. And we're all getting paid to be here. And he was like, you should maybe come and check it out. And I was like, okay, well, you know, you know, he's my dad, so I'm going to listen to him. And I think I might've ridden my bike there to check it out on a lunch hour, or I managed to like check it out the next day or whatever. But I still remember the yard. I still remember the neighborhood. And I remember looking up and seeing the arborists at the time. I still know those arborists too, by the way, uh, swinging around. And I was like, man, this, this kind of makes a little bit of sense, you know? And so I applied for a job and got a job dragon brush. And obviously, you know, I was working along with the arborist and my dad. And then at the time, the owner of the company and, you know, it was fun. It was, it was hard, but you know, you got that short term goal gratification every single day, every step of the day, right? Like you drag a branch to the chipper. I worked out real good. And then you get a rake, you make the yard look nice and the trees look great. Like we have, (laughs) we're so blessed in our job because like it's just dopamine hit after dopamine hit because we get these short-term goals so anyway (laughs) as a 14 year old kid that's kind of a powerful experience and then combined with you know the experiences that i'd had in and amongst trees combined with a you know a certain personality type that lends itself (laughs) to that type of activity it seemed like a nice fit um so within a year i was climbing um on that very farm where i had my first experiences being close to trees is where I learned how uh, to, you know, tie hitches and and start using ropes to get around in the trees. I remember the big poplar that I learned in. And then it just, man, I never, I never really looked back. There were a few winters where, you know, things got a little thin and I got a little hungry and ended up <laughs> in some other industries such as insulating in the construction industry, wow. um, apartment buildings in Edmonton and Red Deer of all places. But I... Uh, 
It's the only job I ever quit, man. I remember waking up one day in Red Deer after having insulation dust all over my entire body. It pissed <laughs> cold. And I just thought to myself, I was like, I cannot let this become my life. So I quit on the spot, got on a Greyhound, Greyhounded my way back to Lethbridge, jumped into a car that I received after my grandfather died for like 500 bucks and then packed everything I owned in a Ford Taurus and drove to Vancouver Island because that's where I heard where there were big trees. So I ended up in Vancouver Island in February of 2007, had no plan whatsoever aside from the fact that that's where big trees were. And uh, <laughs> I found Davey's phone number in the yellow pages. Cause remember we're talking 07, right? Like no, no yeah, iPhones yeah. yet. So I yellow paged yeah, it yeah. and, uh, made a phone call and I was like, listen, I'm here. I got no plan. I will climb. I remember telling him I'll climb in the wind and I'll climb in the rain and snow because that's all we do in Southern Alberta. Like if you're not going to climb in crappy conditions, you're not going to get paid. So I was like, I'll do it. And like, I know you may or may not be looking, I'll work a day for free. So they were like, Jesus, who is this kid? So I sat down with Keith and Lloyd, Lloyd Rumbolt, shout out to, shout out to Lloyd. Yeah. I was like, look, I want like, I know I want to do this and I got no plan, but you guys seem to have like a pretty legit operation here. So like, what do you, what do you think? And they were like, we'll see you on Monday. And that was it, man. Like from there forward, I just never turned back and I'm pretty stoked about it. So do you remember your very first climbing harness and what you were climbing up for rope and a hitch oh, yeah. and take like, Oh yeah, oh, of course. Okay. <laughs> I mean, tell us, tell us about that. Uh, so I did learn, on an eye-to-eye prussic with a pulley, wow, micro pulley, on a yeah. weaver leather. Um, there was this <laughs> real hot shit harness coming out pretty quick called the Nerd Two. <laughs> I was like super stoked about that. Um, of course, this is so back when I was fourteen. Like I was, it was still you know leather harnesses make the most of what you got. Um, but shortly yeah. after learning on the eye-to-eye, uh, then I learned you know it was a Blake's hitch. I think I, I think I'm taut line hitch was just before my time. You know what I mean? But, uh, yeah, 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 but yeah, yeah I spent yeah, a yeah. lot of time on, um, on a Blake's and then a lot of time, obviously in leather harnesses, always a Zubat, uh, first chainsaw 345. That was, the, that, was the, <laughs> that was the lightest, most ergonomic, like surgical saw out there was the 345. And then in terms of rope, um, I see the Arbor master, the Samson, the red, like the black, red, white. And then yeah, yeah, Arbor Master. I seem to remember a lot of true blue in those days. You know what I mean? <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. 12 strand intro. Yeah. And, and, and the, the blue streak too. Was yeah, quite popular. yeah. And then the blue streak. So I remember uh, Davey got me blue streak. So years later, blue right. streak, you know, that became the line, you know, with a big eye. I remember yeah. I had a big eye. So it was girth hitching a lot of carabiners yeah. back then. Uh, yeah, you know, it was the Blue Streak. It's interesting, the story there, because, uh, you know, uh, Bob Weber and Ken Palmer, it was Bob, Arbor Master was Bob Weber's brainchild. And yeah. uh, Ken was kind of a sidekick. And then, it, you know, things happened and it ended up being Ken taking it over, kind of moving on with it and, yeah. and Rip Tompkins. And, but the very beginning, they were, everybody was, see, the, the first 16 strand rope was made by New England. It was New England Safety Blue. And yeah. it had a blue core. A blue core, but it was and like it, orange and uh, white, or was it, was it just white. white on the outside? Well, orange and white was the it, the first colored rope. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. See, the very I first thing was blue was just 
was just white, right? So that was there, there was no like when they came out with that orange in it, it was like holy crap! The first time color was ever introduced, and everyone was like, "Wow!" And nobody else was really making a sixteen strand line. Samson was making Arborplex, which was a twelve strand, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah. Rip and Ken went to Samson, yeah. or to sorry, to New England, and said, "We'd like to partner with you guys. We're training." And New England just said, "Yeah." Whatever, guys. Not interested. No future like, in that. Come on, your industry's dead in the water. <laughs> well, they, they were making the rope, but they just didn't feel they needed any help, right? And Samson, for somehow, I don't remember all the circumstance around it, they heard about it and said, well, we'd like to make a rope with you guys. And that's what Blue Streak was. Yeah, okay. That's, and, you know, they said to them, you need something like, this is all we're going to climb on. We're not going to climb on Arborplex because that's crap. We're going to climb on this. And if you make something like it, We'll use it. And that's how Blue Street came into being. And, you know, I can't imagine what New England must have thought 10 years later because it, it outsold it by a long shot after a while. Yeah, that was some high-performance stuff back then. <laughs> it was pretty cool. And it was, you know, it was. it's funny because Zampton was the leader that first made synthetic rope. Then New England blew the doors off him with, 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 uh, with the safety blue. Yeah. And then comes around to making Blue Streak. And, you know, now there's so many options, it's ridiculous. I think it's awesome. I um, mean, I've, I've definitely yeah. gone down the rope nerd tunnel, like, deep. And it's, man, rope is so <laughs> cool. I, like, I'm such a nerd when it comes to rope. I'd like as much information as I can find. I just eat it up. And it's cool to hear the history. And it's even more exciting to see where we're headed. Well, I think you're even you're, – there's a certain element – to really qualify you or to earn you a different type of status or moniker within the, the, the realm of arbor culture development. And one of those is having developed a harness. Ah. There is not that many people uh, that have had a hand in convincing a manufacturer that they got the idea behind a, the, the next best thing for harness, yeah. you know, cause it's a tough thing to reinvent. Oh, for sure. You know, I remember Buck would always talk about that. It's like, is it really different? But yet it is. So, and you did that, like you, you've reached that pinnacle of, of, of convincing a manufacturer, you know, so your zeal, your enthusiasm, your knowledge and, and, and actually producing a product, a, a, a custom harness that was your kind of brainchild, if I'm not mistaken. A little bit. Like, I mean, I, I was involved in the early stages of basically technical feedback. I mean, the folks at Edelrid, they're geniuses beyond like, you know, anything that I could come up with, but, um, they had some ideas and then I was fortunate enough to join, uh, the North American rep and then head of development down in Oregon. And we tried out the early versions of the tree Rex harness. So the ideas were, you know, already in place. I don't, I don't have any like claim oh. to any of the real innovation in that harness, but there were some, um, corrections or some feedback that I provided that, um, has since, been received and uh, we're going to see some updates to that harness which reflect some of that feedback and uh and also on a handful of other products as well and i've actually been really fortunate like i've i've just been in the right place at the right time multiple times and uh folks um i guess you could say you know they they at least honored my opinion or took the time to listen to it and i think that thanks to you know you and our can i was I guess you could say empowered with the ability to clearly express myself <laughs> at, in certain times. So because of that, certain skill sets have lent them uh, 
certain opportunities, I guess you could say. But I, I definitely didn't come up with the idea of the tree racks. Although one thing that I've been a huge supporter of because of injuries that I've sustained not working, but uh, in you know extracurricular activities, a harness, a harness isn't necessarily good if it's light and a harness isn't just good if it can be customized and it's not good if it's just safe right there's got to be a blend there's got to be a happy space that gets arrived at with that just like with just about any other product that i can think of there's a functionality you know conversation to have but then there's also like a utility and those are two different things right there's a utilitarian way to go about things there's a pragmatic approach and then there's of course the safety end of things so Working with Edelrid has been really encouraging in that I can walk in there with, at this stage, you know, 20 plus years of experience and I can get into something and I can draw on that experience really quickly and say like, well, in this scenario, this is going to hurt or this is not going to be, or, or so, or, or this is going to work really good. So one thing that was really important to me long before I worked with Edelrid was the ability to adjust the center of mass you know, where, where you sit in your harness. So one way to describe that would be like the balance between leg strap tension and lateral tension. So the, the space between your forward D's and where your bridge is going to attach. Because from mm -hmm. an early point in my career, because I was switching harnesses and stuff, working for different companies, you know, I, I really quickly realized what I liked and what I didn't like. And, and like tangible objective reasons why that was the case, depending on your climbing style and the moves that you make. And then the injuries came in. So that it was like just perfect timing uh, to start working with a company that was receptive to that, that was able to execute on some actually kind of complicated ideas. You know, it's interesting how, you know, they say that which doesn't kill us makes us stronger. And, you know, I think of, again, the tree analogy of, you know, the wounds and damages that trees sustain and how it shapes what the tree's like in the future. It's it's reaction to various stimulus and how that, you know, forms who, what a tree is and who we are as people. And, um, you know, you... You know, I'm, I'm curious, you know, you, I, I, those of you that know, you know, you're involved in, in other uh, activities that, that even probably challenge the, the dynamic scope of tree climbing uh, as far as adrenaline and, and not even, you know, and I, I, I'm careful how I say this because you and I have talked before and I really appreciated the answer you gave me about why you, you like the, the, the aerial acrobatic type stuff you do. Um the skydiving, the wingsuit flying, particularly, because it isn't, it was, it, you know, I, and then what that has, you know, some of the consequences of that and how that's played into your woundwood as a person, those experiences, because I think your astuteness to what you're talking about in harness of development, you know, that a large that comes from what happened. Exactly. You know, that, you, you know, and, and without that, you wouldn't even have the consideration to those things that you do now, exactly. yeah. you know, so um, maybe you could just share a little bit about how that experience has shaped you, the tree you are today, if you're willing to, to go there. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, like I'm a hundred percent at peace. Like I'm, I'm happier now than I've ever been in my entire life. And I will, I will, you know, the irony of course, is that like the best thing that ever happened to me, was breaking damn near every bone in my body at once. You know what I mean? Like it was, it was a pretty transformative experience. And, uh, I actually like, it was rough. Like you want to start talking about rock bottom. 
like there there were moments during and shortly afterward and then even years afterward where rock bottom was something that I was like like surely I've hit it at this stage but in hindsight I am like forever thankful for I mean you know the various mountain bike accidents plus you know the big one where I had a a, a total malfunction uh, of a base jumping system that left me you know broken I think it was like 14 or 15 broken bones in a river, you know, kicking and swimming, you know, you know, I I didn't have good chances, you know, and I definitely remember what it felt like to kind of have a choice as to whether or not I was going to stick around or peace out, you know, and I, I did choose to stick around. Um, and I, not because I'm like exceptionally like hard or anything like that, but you know, I was just really blessed in that moment to be able to make the choice. And, and here we are, you know, a little over 10 years later, because it happened May 9th, 2013. And here we are, 2023, right? 10 years ago, I was on my deathbed. Wow. And, uh, you know, without those injuries and without that rapid key, you know, decal or recalibration of priorities, um, yeah. I don't really know where I would have ended up. Because frankly, like a lot of the things that I was doing were half exciting, but then half forced relief you know, from an experience that I just really wasn't, I guess, interested in having, you know, the regular life thing has never really appealed. So it was always neat to be able to have like such a consistent, reliable way, you know, to, to not escape it, but just, you know, experience things in a different way, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, it, I think I can relate, you know, in my own way. Uh, and, and, and it, I remember asking you one time about it and, you know, I remember the, what I remember from it, my history of it was that my story of what you told me was that for you, it, it makes you become focused and, and hyper vigilant and plan. And like, and that's what the thrill for you was. You said there's people that do, this activity like base jumping, for example, um, because they just need that thrill. And you said, of course, that element's there, but for you, it's the planning, the leading up to it, the, the weather, the, the, the decision to go and when that decision made, the timing of, and everything that has to happen in such precise order. Yes. And then for you, that's what gave you that, that's what kept you going back. Is that still what you would say yep. today? And, and, even more so now with everything else that I do in my life. So, you know, not everything relates back to childhood trauma, <laughs> but I have always been, <laughs> even as a young kid, just obsessed with the way that things work. So my, my literally like my earliest like memories are me taking things apart and putting them back together. Like the amount of time that I spent with Lego was ridiculous, you know, and if I get my hands on anything, a VCR, you know, whatever, I needed to try to figure out the mechanisms within it. And then, you know, then it became bikes. So like the fascination of being able to like build and create a thing in the world that then you can use to have experiences like, holy cow, talk about, talk about like a pure experience, right? Like, What's so crazy about ideas, what's so crazy about everything that's around us in this moment is that it all didn't exist at one point and then it did. It was an idea and it was brought forth into reality. But it had to start somewhere. 
You know, like that's a fascinating thing to think about. So how that relates forward is like, well, what if we did that with the highest maintenance fees possible? Then you might be onto something. And, you know, with mountain biking, as that progressed into rock climbing, as that progressed into looking off the top of really big mountains and thinking like, well, I've already climbed it. And there's no way I could jump off of this with my mountain bike. So there's got to be a new way to explore this realm. And if all I need to do is learn, like that's easy. Just get me in front of the information. I'll learn it. And then this whole world, right, just becomes this giant playground that you get to experience. And the only thing that's holding you back is how much you know about stuff. We'll just go know more stuff. So then as that transfer, I know it's such a childish way to look at it, right? Like it's also simple, but... I don't know, maybe that's just the way that I think. But then when things when things get like mortally serious, then you get yeah. to really question like, do I know my shit or not? Right? Like, like that, that <laughs> imposter syndrome by nature goes yeah. away. Because if you go out into the world and you find a mountain, and on that mountain is enough of a vertical aspect that you might be able to like enter your body into it and survive it. That's a pretty special experience. So then to have the know-how of finding it and then getting on top of it, because that's not easy, right? You got to have like a certain amount of technical prowess just to get to the top of these cliffs or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So then you get to the top and then you run the numbers. Okay, well, like prevailing winds are going to be this way and this is how long I'm going to have. And I know my equipment. And then there's all of like the interesting like textile-y, you know, calculations that go into that. And then it all culminates into this really interesting problem, like math problem that you get to then solve. And if you do a good enough job solving it, your body becomes the initiation of the, of the equation, right? So like the way that I always always thought about it is like, there was a math problem or a physics problem ahead of me. And I've done everything that I could to address like, number one, the learning of how to do the math initially anyway, and then plugging in all the variables to the best of my knowledge, the best of my ability. And then did I do a good enough job? And the ultimate test is to put yourself, your own body, your own person into the equation and then run the test. And when you come out with the answer you expected, there's a feeling that you get, which is really, really exciting because you've learned something. There's nothing more like interesting in life than learning a new thing. So what I get to do for like a living, I'm so blessed. Like I'm the luckiest guy in the whole world is I get to plug my body, my life into these equations and learn all the time. So a new harness is just another opportunity to learn something, a new rope construction, a new knot, a new way to design a parachute container. All of these are really interesting opportunities to learn something, you know? And then you get this tangible feedback. Yeah. Like it's the best thing in the whole world. Well, yeah, and then the, the you know, the success is survival. That's pretty motiv- That's pretty motivating factor. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, you know, you had alluded to like the adrenaline and the dopamine and then all that kind of stuff. And, you know, smarter people than me have done the chemistry on this. But I will say that I do not, I don't feel fulfilled when like every hair on my body standing up and I'm just jonesing and vibrating because I survived something. That's not where the fun comes in for me. The fun comes in from doing the homework and then presenting the assignment and then getting potentially an A plus on it. Did I do a good job? 
you did a good job and today you get to live or today you get to get paid or today you get to, you know, watch light bulbs light up uh, above the heads of your students. Like each one of those is another like powerful motivating factor and they're all repeatable. So that's a win. You know what I mean? I like in a lot of ways, I don't know what the meaning of life is and like definitely don't consult me on that. But to me, that process and that result has to have something to do with it. Yeah, and it you know it, it brings a lot of perspective to. I've always often wondered how someone that is as widely gifted in you as you are and has so many talents and experiences, like things that you enjoy to doing. And one of them is, you know, I'll never forget the day you and I were going to do a, an APCO chainsaw course. You know, it's it it it's not necessarily the most glamorous class to deliver, right? But it's a great you know it's chainsaw training, and I love to teach, and I I can relate on that level very much. But you had you you know you met me at the office and you had just finished you know jumping uh, Halloween, yeah. and you'd you'd come up and said oh yeah this morning I, I went and jumped and you know you 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 ran up jumped down landed at your car and drove up to meet me and we were driving up to Grand Prairie to do a course and I thought man what a wild varying it's just not not everyone that does base jumping also goes and teaches linemen how to be safe with a chainsaw, you know. And, and I always thought it was pretty fascinating. And I knew it was your passion. Like, I didn't deny – I couldn't deny. I, I, I knew you were sincere in pursuing this. You were enjoying yourself equally in both situations. And I, it always found that fascinating. And that's the key. So, like, some people can only be happy if they're jumping. But like that person inevitably is going to hit the water doing 90. You know what I mean? If there's only one thing in life that really like turns you on, that's the only thing that you're going to do. And then if you just run the numbers, eventually you're going to keep doing that into a situation where maybe it's not sustainable anymore. And then the world comes knocking and the universe has a lesson that's ready for you. But if you just like broaden your horizons a little bit and zoom out, Right. And then figure out, well, what is the experience here that I'm going for? Like, is, if it's just the adrenaline, unfortunately, I have bad news. And like, I've got, uh, you know, I've got a lot of friends that have passed away because maybe that was their approach. Now, I can't speak for them and I never would, but, you know, I've met some people that were pretty motivated on the chemical response and like they're no, they're no longer here. Whereas, there's a fulfillment thing that I think needs to come into it. And I don't think that fulfillment, like, like the deep kind of fulfillment, I don't really think it comes from a simple chemical reaction. I think it's like the culmination of a whole bunch of things. So when I'm in class and I'm flowing, right, thanks to, honestly, a lot of the gifts that you and Andrew and the other folks at ArbCan have provided, I can get that same level of like fulfillment. But the thing is, contrast is so important. So, you know, for instance, working uh, with North American Training Solutions, there were times where I was on the road for like five weeks. And after three weeks, I could tell that like my excitement and engagement, like it just wasn't quite the same. It wasn't quite as organic. But then I would step away and I would go and teach wingsuiting. I'm still teaching, but at that time I was teaching wingsuiting and I'd come out of it like, oh, just stoked. And then I'd go for some yeah. jumps and then I'd go and hang out with, you know, at the time, my girlfriend, who's now my wife on the beach. And like, I started to realize that like, you can feel like fully fulfilled and present as long as you open your mind to that being possible, right? 
It isn't, it isn't just the yeah. one thing that delivers it. It's a state. So how can you use everything to deliver that state? Well, now you're onto something, right? Because like <laughs> if like a $4 beer and a Frisbee on the beach can deliver the same level of happiness as base jumping from a 300 foot tall giant sequoia, now you're sustainable, right? So now life can totally be fun and you don't have to risk your life every single time you want to have some fun, which is like a pretty good thing to have in the repertoire. But, you know, earlier this year, you know, I had let Arbcan know that I just needed to step back just a little bit from the teaching. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't because I was doing too much. Like, I mean, I, I could never dream of, you know, keeping up with your schedule or even Neil's schedule now at this stage. Like, it's insanity. Like, you guys are, you guys are amazing. You're angels. You're gifted. Um but for me, I just needed, I needed to pull focus and put it somewhere else so that I could rediscover that excitement. And I did. And like, mm -hmm. man, this year has been hilarious. I went to Northwest Territories, back to back to Germany, back to back up to Toronto and then out to Calgary, essentially teaching every single step of the way. And it was just as fun as it was the first time that I delivered ATCO as a lead trainer with you. So yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty cool. I'm so lucky, man. Like I'm just the luckiest guy in the whole world. You know, it's a theme you hear a lot when people discover those things. And I, I think the, the variability, you know, uh, the uh, being able to find it, it, you know, being able to be present and appreciate what's right in front of you at any given point in time is is something that we have a choice and somehow we somehow have a choice to discover it and it's there for us all. And I, I don't know what, you know, I've only recently, I would say in the last couple of years where I've started to be able to discover at least the variability. I got myself caught in a loop of thinking I had, I found it in only one, one solution, you know, and, and, uh, not literally, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but you know, it, it is possible. And it is. And, and Tony, I think, you know, you, 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 you know, sum this up in, in a recent conversation you mentioned about, you know, finding a way to, uh, I can't remember what, with the word you use, but it's along these lines of, of, uh, not like having different ways to enjoy yourself. Is that fair to say, Tony? Uh, to, to regulate, you know, to yeah. spiritually, emotionally, physically, to an extent, I think everybody kind of understands the like physical regulation. Like you work hard all day, you go home, you rest, drink water. You know, I think everybody gets that, but I think the other aspects of it, the emotional regulation and spiritual meaning, and, you know, the sense of something bigger, Right. Say when I say spiritual, I'm almost talking about a sense of awe. Right? Mm -hmm. However you define that is, is up to you. But having ways to um, to regulate that and and to renew that. Right. You know, the the the, the saying in, in weight training is if you don't recover, you won't. Right. I think that's true in many things. If you don't take time to recover, you won't. And, yeah. You know, that the man who doesn't have five minutes to meditate is the man that needs an hour. Yeah. And, I, you know, and it's funny, you know, we started the conversation like, you know, when you started to find meaning in trees. And I, I thought about think about that a lot, just not only doing this podcast, but just, well, I think a lot. And, uh, you know, it, it's yeah. I, I would I had originally thought that, you know, the meaning of of like that, what forests are and what trees are in my life only came about after a certain amount of time. And they had to, and that's part of it. But I think it's bigger. You don't know what you have until it's gone. And I didn't realize the meaning 
that trees had for me just in a holistic sense until I wasn't in the trees all day anymore because of my career choices, right? You know, I, I made a conscious effort not to do production tree work every day. I wanted to do other things in life. Yeah. And then I realized when it was gone, I'm like, oh shit. Like I've never much been into meditation because I've never needed it because right. my, because it was in a tree right was, there. Yeah. It was right there. And then when I wasn't doing that tree work anymore, it's like, well, shit. Well, uh, how did this happen? You know, like, damn, you know, so I think it's a twofold thing when you it's experience and wisdom. You'd like to think as we get moved through this world and travel down our path that you gain a little bit of knowledge here and there. But then I think it's also like if it's always there, you don't miss it until it's gone. I agree emphatically. Yeah. You don't know what you got. Life is in the contrast, right, guys? And the context. Right. There are lessons ever present around us all the time, mm-hmm. but yeah, really we're the ones that are kind of getting in the way as to whether or not it gets received. So then you go away, right? The alchemist, and then you come back and it was always there, but now you're ready to see it. And, uh, it's kind of cool, isn't it? That like we prune trees. And if you do that right, you're going to prune a tree several times over the course of the year. And then, you know, the classic analogy is the man in the river, but maybe it's even more appropriate in the trees. And like, it's not the same man returning to the same tree or the same woman returning to the same tree to prune it again. It's a new tree and it's a new person. It's kind of cool how things evolve like that, I guess. Yeah, I think, yeah, it's, yeah, I think you're right. I think the tree for that is a better analogy than the river, right? Because, you know, for the, for people that don't know the quote is like, you know, you never cross the same river twice because the river's changed and, and mm. changed. Well, right, right, right. You never prune the same tree twice and you never yeah. climb the same tree twice. Yeah, you know, it might be the same physical manifestation of, you know, sequestered carbon, but that tree has been through a lot more since you last saw it. You know, the seasons, the winds, the changes, the climate, the people, the equipment, the whatever else, the car that crashed into it, right? And then you come back and, you know, you've both changed. But you get reacquainted. And I don't know, like, I mean, I I can't imagine that this job is like that for everybody. But, you know, maybe we choose to make it that and it just makes it that much more fun. I I think people that have that have like kept it up for, you know, a decade or two, or it's made, you know, it becomes more than just a job. I think for them that the experience, they know exactly what we're talking about. I love the analogy of the tree, you know, that like it's the same tree, but sorry, my, my dog's decided he's having a bit of a fit here. So I apologize for the background noise, but uh, a tree changes and then you climb that tree 10 years ago, but the, you know, the storms, the damage, just like humans, it, it, it's, it's the same tree, but different. And, but and it, it, and, and, and you know, a, to me, the tree's an example of that survival, like, trying to withstand the force of gravity and wind in, in an upright manner as best it can and absorbing, integrating and sealing those defects and injuries and, and just making it a part of itself and how, how much like human, uh, how much for us like humans that's like that. Yeah. And then of course there would be the added variable of constantly trying to achieve balance, which is maybe another, you know, powerful analogy not to anthropomorphize trees or anything, but you know, it's something to consider. Like we're always fighting for balance. And like Tony, to your earlier point in terms of, you know, engagement with the different pillars of a life, be it, you know, you get a certain physical satisfaction from doing our job and then you get a certain spiritual 
uh, satisfaction if you're open to that type of thing. But, you know, down the road, you start to realize like, holy smokes, there's a lot of pillars to a cool life. You know, like you got to have your finances on point. You got to have your community on point, your family and your friends. And, you know, there's a career and then there's a legacy that you need to think of. But I also need to stay healthy and I want to stay fit. And then I also still want to live a long time. And like all of a sudden you realize you're trying to juggle, you know, 15 different pillars. Well, that's kind of what a tree's doing all the time yeah. too. And yeah. what's cool is that when we see a well-formed tree, we see a balanced right? A, a well-developed tree. It, it's got good taper. It's got a solid foundation. It has this exponential decreasing in, in size of limbs down to branches, down to twigs. And, you know, there's this cool, there, like, there's just so many analogies. And, and again, like we teach, is it a coincidence that there's trees at the center of almost every origin story of culture and religion and everything? Like, probably not. Like, they're a powerful, ever-present <laughs> source of, like, wisdom and observational education right it's just it's pretty cool that we get to call them part of our job well yeah and and that the the older and they are regardless of size but the older they are the more meaning that has you know because maybe it's subconsciously or whatever spiritually we realize that they've they've had to live this life however many and and we can't really relate because you know, it's a thousand years or it's a hundred years or it's 700 years. Like, you know, imagine if we had to live that long and what, what would happen to us and the things we'd have to endure and, and what we'd become. Yeah, that's really cool. And I like the, and I guess I hadn't quite pers- put the perspective of the balance, the, the equalizing load, you know, and, uh, you know, what an example also of contrast, yeah. you know, with the changing of seasons. <laughs> Yeah. So as a young man or young woman, I think it's very easy to just hate things. Like I hate the summer. It's always so hot and so dry. Or I hate the winter. It's always so cold. But then like, you know, you grow older and you start looking out the window and you're like, you know, the snow's pretty and autumn is pretty and the spring is really pretty and the sun is enjoyable. And it's like all of a sudden you stop focusing on the things that your petty little, you know, existence doesn't like and you start to appreciate what's bigger and better and you know to your point about like the thousand year thing so like i spend a lot of time like intimately in connection with mountains and mountains like they've been there for eons like we're talking tens of thousands a hundred thousand years and then you interact with trees that are thousands of years old like giant sequoias right but then you interact with like the pests in a tree and their entire experience is over within in some cases a single season in in other cases we're talking days like a month or two so then you start to realize like hold on like there must be like a relative kind of perspective to approach this from because when you hike on a mountain for instance like the time that i hiked up and jumped off before i came to teach yeah, that mountain was there a long time before yeah. I got there, and I'll be there a long time after I'm gone. Right, that mountain, if there is any consciousness associated with it, watches the seasons pass and the years pass, like the way that we watch seconds pass. But then conversely, you watch a bug and you see and you think like that existence is so puny, right? Like that, what what could that bug ever possibly learn over the course of thirty days? But then you realize, well, you are the bug to the mountain. <laughs> you are the bug to the giant sequoia. So, you know, when an ant crawls up your shin and makes you itch and you flick it off, 
Well, a tree that is thousands of years old with an arborist in it has an <laughs> ant in it, right? <laughs> and all of the culmination of all your experiences and your hopes and your dreams and your loved ones and your enemies and stuff, it all exists within that ant, which <laughs> if the tree could, would just brush you off. <laughs> right? Like it teaches you the relativism of things. And I think that as you get older, you start to appreciate the fact that like you are simultaneously living a huge life and also a tiny little sliver of existence at the same yeah, time. I, I, cool. You know, I, I can definitely really, I, I like that analogy. I, I think though the one area what pops into my mind, unlike I'm like the flickage of the ant, and I, I'm, I think back to my time spent in the temple in Thailand with Monk Sarachai and, you know, do harm to nothing. And I remember we were doing mm. some, some cleanup in the in the temple yard, which was something we did every afternoon. And there was these, they had these, I don't know, it was like a centipede or some type of, you know, ground critter insect, but it had quite intense pinchers. And it yeah. pinched him on the toe, because you're doing everything barefoot, right? And uh, he made the, like, he, he exclaimed, which was strange for him to have, like, to hear, ah, like a comment like that out of a monk's rare. And then, yeah. you know, we, me and the couple guys are helping him notice that he had, and this thing had latched onto his toe. And it was pinching it, man. Like, it wasn't drawing blood, but this thing was biting him, right? And, but, and you could see his, his immediate instinct was to, like, hit it or swack it brush it off right but he didn't want to hurt it and that came yeah. into play and he he carefully grabbed it quite quickly though like he was, there was a sense of urgency and and then he and he cast it off but it was he didn't injure it and, yeah. I, and I think that you know that having that quality in in us and it's just beginning to develop in me where and i think trees have it far greater than that like the tree doesn't brush us off the tree takes us in and makes us allows us to be part of it for yes. that short time. And you know, when I get the when I'm wise and old enough to let that ant just make its trek and not feel compelled to to throw it away or to brush it off, um, maybe I'll get to that sentientism a tree's display. Maybe you know, and, and well, I, yeah, I don't just know if that. <laughs> I, like I'm, I'm, I'm very careful in the way that I describe that. And you would have noticed that I said brush it off, but mm -hmm. didn't squish it. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. it's for that reason because the entire point that you just made, I'm hyper conscious of because of what my job is. Right. By nature, I cut down a lot of trees, man. And in fact, by nature, just teaching the how many people were in that course? Eight. Well, seven by the end. Yeah, yeah. Of. PTRR, so production tree removal and rigging, um, we did a lot of harm to a handful of trees. Yep. The kind of harm that those trees will never recover from. Right. Now, do we look at the trees as individuals or do we look at the trees as part of a system? That's one aspect of it. Right. Also, those trees are maybe sacrificing themselves for the greater good. That's another way to justify our actions right? yeah, 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 but yeah. i think the key there is that you look at the whole picture and if you can zoom out and you can i guess come to terms with what you're doing you decide whether or not it's being done with malicious intent or reactive intent or with the concept of like the infinite game right. and yeah. it's it's really only by considering this 
like, cause I have a lot of time to think, like, let's be honest, like Tony, <laughs> you and me, buddy, <laughs> we spend a lot of time in our own heads. It's the nature of our personality types, but I can say that I'm at peace with the actions that I have to take in life, even if that means cutting down a tree, because I've done everything that I can do to ensure that those trees get recycled or upcycled. I also realize that they're part of a system, just like I'm part of a system. Right. And, you know, I'm conscious enough to know that I get this meat vehicle for 87.5 years, 100 if I'm lucky, you know, <laughs> and then ashes to ashes and dust to dust. So I don't squish ants. I don't poison ants. I don't use raid in trees. I figure out ways to get the wasp nest down, but that's just my choice. Yeah. Uh, that said, that said, if it's a choice between my kid and a rattlesnake, bye-bye rattlesnake, right? So, yeah. you know. I get what you're saying, and I think that it's also appropriate to be hyper-conscious. Now, the monk that got his toe bitten, once he got it off, what did he do, right? I'm sure he set it outside. Well, he just, no, he just threw it, it we were outside, right? So he just, yeah, okay. so he just, just you he know, just off to the side it went. He didn't we were, need to squish it, he didn't need to kill it, no. he just needed to, you know, no longer be attached to it. Yeah, and I think, I think you hit the nail on the head, like, I don't know that, that if, given the circumstance, if it was necessary, you know... It, it's do harm and yeah. you know i think that's there's a key in there like if you're maliciously as you said or intending harm that's different than you know you have to do something for another reason right and uh exactly. and that's that's where it comes down to it comes down to again the intent it's, it's very much like you were talking about earlier it's what is your intention or purpose and What's like how, yeah how you find joy do you find mowing the lawn meaningless and boring or can you find joy in that because uh, you're outside? Because they're both right. Both yeah. of those people are right. Right? <laughs> That's what's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and non-attachment or non-judgmentalism is, is a big part of that. Being able to not, you know, put on to others what you think is the way you would do it, right? And not make that an right. issue is, a, is another gift or challenge that's part of I think maturity, and that doesn't necessarily mean how old you are, right? I think no. So you taught me that. I mean, well, you and Andrew both, you did a, I would hope that you did a good job teaching me that because I do like to embody that. But the intention is really what matters. And I think that as like a young man or a young trainer or a young person in a leadership role, you really want the credit, right? Because it feels good to be that guy. But then you later realize that it's not really about who, it's about what. Like what was the experience that you delivered? And maybe it just takes practice or maybe it just takes repetition. Um, but I can say that I think that I've learned at this stage that, and maybe it's because I've actually received some credit and I realize that maybe it isn't the end all and be all. I don't know. But mm. I really do think that the intention is to deliver a net positive experience you know, be that as a trainer, be that as a father, be that as a husband or as a friend. So if that's the infinite game and you just start every interaction with that, I guess, core value, you really can't lose. I don't think, you know, yeah. I feel like you must be doing it for the right reason. If that's the case, I agree. even if it means pushing a bug or yeah. cutting down a tree. Yeah. yeah. I think it's important to, and you know, you mentioned the term of balance and I've always kind of, I always bristle at that. I prefer the term rhythm. Sure. Um, and I think it, it works better because when you say something's in balance, like I cut down trees, now I should plant 10 trees. Mm -hmm. But 
Yeah. That's just like I had I had two bad days. I should have two good days. Or I had ten <laughs> yeah. good days. I should have ten bad days. That's yeah, you're balance, checking right? your clock. Like it should be good. Rhythm, time, right? Yeah. Rhythm is more like, hey, this is where I'm at. This is and I'm doing it for this reason and this is why. And you know, I might be cutting down I'm the job might be to cut down one hundred Atlantis trees. Mm-hmm. Um and but that's just where it is, and there's a reason for that, and the attention's there. And it's not that I somehow have to counterbalance that. That's just the rhythm. That's yes. the stroke of where I was at. And just because I'm down, because I'm having a sad time, and you know I'm losing more than I'm winning. Hey, that's what happens. You accept it and you move on. And it's just it's, so it's much more of a rhythm for me mm. than it is. And I think trees are the same way, right? Like trees, you look at growth rings, right? They're not like you don't have like you have a ten year old tree and it had five bad years, so it had to have ten good years. Yeah, it it had what it had. Doesn't seem to work (laughs) out that way. Yeah, (laughs) you know, it just had what it had. So you can see the rhythm of the tree's life and its growth ring. So yeah, I think rhythm's a better term. I agree. I hundred percent agree. And rhythm by nature comes with highs and lows, right? And something that you realize, you know, Dwayne, you and I are. I think you know, Tony. I don't know nearly as much as your past as you know. I'm not as close with you as I am with Dwayne. But you know, Dwayne, you and I have had our ups and downs. You know what I mean? And I don't mean like relationship wise, like obviously every relationship does, but like in life, we've had our ups and our downs. And isn't it interesting that like we continue to pursue a higher high and of, of excitement or glee or joy or whatever, but like it's rhythm, man. It's, you know, that's just, if you're going to, if you're going to subject yourself to these, you kind of got to be ready for some of these. So when you're in there, you got to just be, this is where I am right now. Mm-hmm, exactly. That's a lesson to learn. But I learned that lesson from my buddy Dale. He taught me that one. He's like, sometimes you find yourself in a situation that you have to be in. Okay. Like there, there is no getting out of it. And for him, ironically, he's got like one of those real jobs, like where you sit in an office and like you talk to people and answer memos and stuff like that. He's got one of those kind of things. And a lot of it for him, because he is a lot like me, it's just kind of like, God, what am I even doing with my life? But there's sort of like, if you just sort of just, I don't know, like renege a little bit of control and just like, this is what I'm doing right now. You make the conscious effort to just experience it. So now I've taken that on, like if I'm on a job site and it's my job site, right? Like I could probably come up with an excuse to leave it, to go and do something more important. But if I've got a half a mile of raking to do, I do find myself able to say like, this is what I'm doing right now. You know, I'm just raking. Or when I'm in the ice bath, this is what I'm doing right now. I've committed to three minutes or five minutes. It's unpleasant. I'm going to live, but this is what I'm doing right now. And, you know, there's certain aspects to training that is like that too. Commercial airline flights waiting at your gate, right? (laughs) It's limbo and it's kind of torture, but you just, you know, submit every once in a while. Like, this is what I'm doing right now. And somebody would kill to be in this position. So let's Mm -hmm. try to figure out maybe what they're looking for and then just look for that. And before you know it, there it is right back in front of you. I think the rhythm is a really good way to put it, Tony. You know, I made this conversation. I just hear Shigo's voice in my head, and and you know, he he would always. I like your term bristle, Tony. Shigo would bristle at the term balance because and it because a balance requires no movement. When something's balanced, it doesn't like it's it's sitting right. And trees never yeah. do that. They never. And he he called that dynamic equilibrium was his term oh, okay because it's it's a it, you know rhythm or flow right so because there's it it's never in balance 
it, it doesn't never sit still. So it's either right. there, there's and it's dynamic. So it's moving and it's flowing, which I guess yeah. rhythm would be another term for that, Tony. And uh, and that is like and you know, I think it's important. I think one thing I've started to realize is it is a part of life. And mm. sometimes you wake up and it's raining in your heart or your mind or it's storming and you don't know it wasn't when you went to bed but it's storming in the morning and it's just going to be a snow day you know and and, and it, it it has no sense and to try to change the snow day into a sunny day is really quite futile and that's where my buddhism background comes in it's like yeah. You, I can't resist that. It, I have to observe it and be in it, and it's part of my day today, and I don't know why it's happening. And to try to answer that is futile, really. It's just to I be in and just to enjoy the snow. And it's yeah. going to make, and, and it's not going to last forever. And sometimes I might have a, a snowy month, or I might have a, you know, or, or it, might, it might just be blizzarding, or no, what's the word? I'm not, you know what I mean? I'm using yep. weather as an analogy. So, it's not sunny every day and it's not rainy and stormy every day, but it's part of life. And, uh, and I think the seasons and trees again, epitomize that. Like, like you were saying, Johnny, like spring, the beauty of it versus fall versus winter and, and summer. So, yeah, well, injuries, I was just going to like to expand and just maybe close out uh, with yeah. that idea. Injuries is what really taught that to me because by nature, when you're injured, there are things that you cannot do, right? That like, there's a difference between being hurt and being injured, right? True, uh, I, yeah. I say, right? Like, you can be hurt and you can work through it. You can push through it. We have to do that every single day. It's just part of being an adult. But when you're injured, there are certain like structural things that cannot occur. You have no choice but to accept the fact that you are in, number one, blinding pain, and number two, going to be unable to do the things that you want to do for a while. Right. So what do you do? You know what I mean? And for, you know, people like me, sometimes it takes a relatively loud knock at the door for, you know, me to answer and actually listen. Um, but I'm forever grateful for, you know, the injuries and the stormy days um, <laughs> because it taught me to just be able to kind of chill in that and be okay with it and just know it's not going to be there forever. And if it is, then this is what I'm doing right now. Yeah. And uh, through the analogy of compartmentalization and reaction wood and response growth, we're able to form into, you know, and, and wound wood stronger than regular wood. And yeah. when, the, when the wound is sealed, the wood goes back to being formed the way it was prior to the wound. And, uh, right. but, but all the wound is compartmentalized. So it's still in there. So don't yeah. forget it. Right? Right. Heaven forbid you'd need a whole new pruning cut to teach you the lesson all over. Well, not again. only is it still in there, but it, it shapes who you are, and, and that 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 scar or that wound is part of you now, and it 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 shapes who you are, just like the tree. It changes its form or its tilt or its angle, right? And that's what that's what it does to our lives, and and it's it's you know, it's it's for whatever reason it was necessary, and uh, I, I, it's rare that you hear people. At least uh, maybe I'm just lucky to have experienced this, but most people wouldn't necessarily trade their experiences, even though they weren't all good, because they wouldn't be where they, they it, some people are fortunate enough to realize they wouldn't be where they were without them. Yeah. And, and I think like we're super fortunate, right? Like we, we work a job we love around people that we love in an industry that is 
right now, like I like you would know better than me. You've been in the game longer than I have, but I have been in it for over 20 years. And I like this is the most exciting time that I've ever witnessed for our industry. Like the communities that are popping up, mm-hmm. the groups of friends, the camaraderie that you're seeing, not just at competitions, but just like around, right? Like at these expos and at these trade shows and stuff. Like it's it's like this great big supportive community that I think when I was coming up, there was this like starving dog approach to work. Like if he got the work, that means I didn't get the work. Mm. Everybody was real secretive with like cool techniques and interesting pieces of gear because they didn't want to give away anything that might be a benefit to what they perceived as the other team. But now it doesn't seem like that. And, you know, I think that we could definitely thank folks like you and others that have like nurtured, I guess you could say like a rising tide in the Mm. industry. And guys like me, like I'm super blessed in that now I get to ride the wave, you know, like the rising tide is given, you know, some pretty cool currents that we get to explore right now. You know, I just finished up, well, number one, I was out in Toronto. So I visited with Andrew at Arborwood and then I got to, you know, chat with everybody that came to the vertical expo and two things were really cool. Number one, all the arborists were all a bunch of hooligans and we all got along and it was super cool. So that was <laughs> rad. You like, like sees like, right. You just spot people from across the expo. Like we're going to be friends. Um, but what else was really cool is that that show was set up in such a way that day one was like industry industrial rope access. Right. So it was like you had proper professionals from their trade that were excellent at what they did in an arena that was sort of like adjacent, but not the same. And then the second day was like police, fire, and tactical. So very similar personality types, but, you know, experiencing that same thing in a different arena. And then there was ARB. Now, everybody came back for ARB because they were like, we got to see what these guys are doing. Single rope systems? What are we even talking about, you hooligans? You're going to tie into a tree? What's, what's the tree rated for? Like they looked at us like we were nuts, you know what I mean? But what was cool is that the language that we all spoke, right? The, the, the anatomy of the human body in motion in the vertical realm, be it on rope or just at height, like it was universal for everybody. So yet again, I'm so excited about this industry because number one, there's everything that's happening within it. And then there's all this cool stuff that's happening just on the periphery that I think is going to elevate us to an even higher tide as things move forward. Mm-hmm. I'm very optimistic for the trajectory of our industry right now. Yeah, there's definitely a, you know, I, I hate to say it, but I think the pandemic in, in a lot of ways has rejuvenated the human spirit and the connectivity that people value as a result of, of what happened. You know, people, I would agree. People experience, want to experience and value connectiveness on a far deeper level than prior to. It's been my experience. And I think that's, that's what we're seeing, not only in, in, in our industry, but others. But I think it's why. It's one of the reasons why, I think. I agree. There's like a weird 9-11 effect. You know, it's, it's a little late. It would have been nice to see some of that during. <laughs> um, but it's cool. I, I agree with you. I think that we all collectively went through something. And we're coming out the other end and, you know, we're rediscovering what was important because the in the person training that we're doing and like, you know, the speaking and like the, and the shows and stuff like that, it's pretty cool right now. It seems like everyone's excited to be out. Like there's a new restaurant open in town and everybody kind of wants to get a table and it seems like there's a whole bunch of tables available, which is cool. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. Well, Tony, 
we're getting to that time. They, you know, it's funny, Johnny. We always get to about around seventy minutes. It, it, it never. It it it. it it's your average, I don't know if it's a biorhythm. It sometimes makes me think that the clocks were made wrong or something because it seems like a 70 is, is something magical. But, uh, well, I'll just say for myself right now, I, I appreciate your time and uh, your spirit, your energy. It's always great chatting with you. And it was just a really thank you for, for doing this and for sharing and, and, and letting others hear your part of your story. And, and Tony likes to ask people a question. I kind of start off the same, and we try to end sort of the same. And Tony, your your question for Johnny. <laughs> yeah, we usually ask people, you know, if you could turn back the clock or kick click back the clock, or or give somebody a piece of advice, um, you know, coming up to, following your path. What what would that be? Whether it be through arboriculture or pretty much anything in general, we don't we don't have agendas here relax a little just fucking let go a little bit Dwayne and I had an awesome conversation in the stairway of a Wyndham Resorts Holiday Inn in Balzac Alberta yes that's a real name (laughs) Dwayne and I are both a type personalities true or true (laughs) so when i would teach i would want to deliver the message from a from a d type personality and Dwayne wants to deliver it from an i type personality which means Dwayne, which means Dwayne is going to connect with the people and he's going to tell stories and he's going to let them in but when i get up there i want to be efficient and i want to be effective and i want to deliver the absolute most amount of knowledge possible. And sometimes when that's the case, there is no time for stories and, and connection and all that type of, you know, inconvenient time taking shit in the way. Now I remember that Dwayne and I, and to Dwayne's credit and infinite patience with me had already taught together like dozens of times. So I had been perpetually stepping on his toes in every class that we were teaching, and I got the feeling that he was doing the same to me. So we sat in the hallway before teaching a course, and I remember him saying something along the lines of like, maybe we could try doing something just a little bit different this time. And I was like, okay, well, what does that mean? And I remember you saying like that you were there to support me, but not to compete with me. And that didn't make any sense. I've never, never had that experience from anybody up until at that point, like, like, wait a minute, right? Like, so this is actually a team effort. Like, are you going to commit to being on my team? And for somebody like me, and because of my past, that's actually something that like, I do not take lightly, but you made that commitment. And then I thought like, you know, maybe, Maybe I could do the same with him. (laughs) And that is not a good feeling for me either, right? Because that means that A, I'm relinquishing control and, you know, you know, heaven forbid, I look like an idiot or whatever. I don't know where it came from, but like that, that concept was pretty foreign Mm because, you know, I've always navigated this life alone. So why would there be a teammate in the room? But I tried it and I took that leap and thank God that I did because I remember that course. I don't remember the course. I, I couldn't even tell you what it was, probably TTFC or something like that. But yeah, I, I remember think thinking my new mission, my new goal is to make Dwayne look like a rock star 
in front of these people. And then he'll probably do the same for me. And everything changed after that day. And I let go a little bit. You know what I mean? Like I just, I don't, I don't know. I just was like, maybe today's the day. So I did. And the course went better than any other course we'd done. Dwayne and I were closer and happier than we'd ever been, especially as trainers together from that moment forward. And then I just got to thinking like, you know, maybe there are people out there in the world that you can trust. And maybe by making somebody else the rock star of the moment, it can also help you to be the rock star of the moment. And I've taken that and I've never looked back and I hope that I never do because the cynicism and the closed offness and the obsession of goal achieving and stuff is, is something and it will only get you so far. But like, if you just learn to kind of go with the flow, it seems like things tend to a work out better and they take less effort to get there. And you feel more fulfilled when they're done because it didn't feel like you forced it. Mm. I spent the first 27 years of my life forcing it. And now I don't feel like I have to anymore and it's going better than it ever has. Well, that's awesome. And thank you for sharing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, yeah. thank you. You're welcome. Well, that you- and also don't jump experimental base jumping equipment. <laughs> Go with the stuff right. that's proven. <laughs> because it, there's just no reason to sign up to be a test pilot, you dummy. You know what I mean? Like, no, I was probably using it wrong. It's a pretty good concept. That's a pretty good concept. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. If there's one thing you want to hang your hat on, uh, go with what works. <laughs> I know that. Yeah. yeah I guess. Thanks, thanks so much, guys, for having me because, you know, I didn't know what we were going to talk about, but I knew, you know, if Dwayne was involved, it was going to be fun and, here we are having fun yet again for a little over an hour. So yeah, thank you. It, was, it was good. It was good. And uh, Tony, the master of the, of the audio, he'll, he'll, you know, he'll cut and splice. He doesn't have to do much, but I mean, I shouldn't, I don't mean it that way. I mean, he, he does a good job of it and, and it, it makes us all look good. Like you were saying, um, how, how are you for time? You tight? Wide open. So uh, Tony, are we, how are we at with Matt? Do we have time for an acorn or, or not? Uh, he's probably going to want to check on around 3.30, so we have 15 minutes, 10.15. Oh, you're on Eastern time. Yeah. yeah. Do you want to, like, what I, I was thinking of a quick acorn on what you would have to say to people to recover from injury, uh, you know, in in, a, in 10 minutes or so, and we can make that a, a, a bonus for those that wanted oh, okay. to tune in. You know, because you you went. You know, I remember when we first started training together. You were I was getting out of surgery. Well, yeah, you I were was getting in, all the. I was in slings. I was on crutches when we yeah. were starting to train together. Yeah, I remember because you wanted all the steel taken out. Yeah. So. Yeah, and I mean, I still haven't. There's yeah. there's a bunch of metal in there that's going to be there forever. Okay. Because I <laughs> I got an appointment with a surgeon to get the metal out. And he was like, okay, well, you know, it's been in there for, and at the time it was like, whatever, four or five years. He's like, so we can take it out, but we might re-break your femur. But if we do re-break your femur, there's a rod right there we could use and you're already unconscious. So I was like, what are we talking? Like chances here. He's like 30%. I was like, we're keeping the metal in there because we're not going, we're not going down that road again. So 
you know, they took the screws out of my femur, but the rod is going to remain. Okay. Um, and then in my shoulder, um, my left shoulder, which had been, which has actually been reconstructed two or three times, I think like two and a half times, whatever, depending on what you consider reconstruction because of like the reattachment of tendons and all that kind of shit. But, um, there's going to be a little bit of hardware in there that's going to stay in there as well, uh, which I'm okay with. But the thing is at the time, just you know, we were training in the cold also, like, yeah, right. Yeah. Remember like, yeah. Oh, yeah. Florida, like Fort Saskatchewan, like minus 40 doing aerial lift. Like that was uncomfortable. And the nature yeah. of having yeah. like lingering injuries is like when temperatures change and pressures change, you get to notice it, you know, like, yeah, that's something else that you learn to kind of just <laughs> embrace and love. But, um, when it comes to recovering, so like tips to recovery. Yeah. So, okay. Number one, never give up hope. And I had to learn that um, actually years after my main acute injuries had healed. So just a little bit of context. Um, in, uh, in 2013, I had a parachute fail. I broke my left femur, fractured my right tib fib. I broke five ribs, my, my sternum, my left shoulder blade, dislocated both my shoulders, and then fractured both my humeruses. So it was a pretty nasty impact. Um, I was left in the water with a snapped leg that like was beside me. Like, you know, my femur was completely detached. And as I was kicking, trying to swim out of the river, you know, I was just slicing up the inside of my muscle tissue. My, this, this arm was essentially detached except for like skin and a little bit of leftover muscle. Like I was in really bad shape, but I managed to stay conscious and I managed to get to the edge of the river with the help of my buddy Curtis, who was filming that day. Um, so, you know, there were the acute injuries that took surgical intervention to heal. And that, and that took years, you know, like Dwayne, like, you know, routinely I'd be, t- you know, teaching with you in slings and on crutches and things like that. But yeah. it was later that I developed this debilitating back pain in my lower back. Okay. And a year would go by and another year goes by and another year. And, and now it's, you know, five, six, seven years later. And I'm waking up. Well, I'm not waking up because I'm not sleeping. Like I did, I didn't sleep through the night for eight years because of pain, just latent, nagging pain. Um, I would get decompression therapy because they said that that would help and it would work for a day, and then yoga, and then you know physio, and then Cairo, and and a different type of medicine, and then a new type of treatment, and then just like inevitably, I would end up right back in the state where I could push through it with the help of, you know, lots and lots of ibuprofen and lots and lots of Tylenol and regular ice baths and two hours in the hot tub. And like, I could just stay ahead of it, just, just ahead of it. And I was starting to lose, lose hope. And you know, what, what really starts to get you is as you know, I had a young son at the time. Yeah, I was like, am I actually going to be able to do anything with Tide? Like I'm, you know, picking him up hurts, going to work hurts. And then you get moving and you get home and you're like, Oh, am I okay? And then by like supper time, you're like, Oh my God. So there was just that nagging nonstop pain, but I thankfully didn't give up. And I just kept researching different types of modalities, healing modalities. And I discovered regenerative medicine, um, which unfortunately in Canada is not covered by any type of insurance. Um, 
you know, it kind of starts with prolo injections, which is usually dextrose directly into soft tissue. I tried some of that. It didn't work. Uh, but PRP showed promise. And then of course, after PRP, the next step would be like stem cells of, you know, I could go, I could go for days just on these types of therapies that I've learned about, but I did find a doctor that was able to do PRP. Uh, x-ray guided PRP injections directly into my disc space because it turns out that when you go into a river doing like 100 miles an hour you're going to rupture some shit and I compressed three of my discs in my lower back so um, what is it L it was L3-4 disc L4-5 disc and then L5-S1 disc were mashed potatoes like sticking right out the side which explained all the pain um but, you know, I had that procedure done and it was excruciating. Like my wife had to like help me get into the car seat backwards and put the seatbelt on me backwards to get home. And I spent like 10 days laid up at home. But they just said like, just know the difference isn't going to be now. It's going to be in months. Ugh. And I, I took no ibuprofen and I took no Tylenol and I did not do any ice baths or any of that type of stuff because they don't want you to do anything that's, you know, anti-inflammatory. Right. And sure enough, 90 days. I'm like, wait a second. And then 120 days and then six months. And then before you know it, like I was like, holy shit, like I, did I actually get my life back? And I'm really careful yeah. to like celebrate anything in life early because, you know, <laughs> I'm always worried about the rug getting pulled out from under me. Right. But like, I will say that one treatment, which cost like $2,000, turned my life around. Uh -huh. And I sleep now. I pick my kids up. I ride my bike. I still do flips and spins on my bike. I still base jump. I still skydive. Um, you know, I take commercial flights all the time now and I get off the plane and I actually walk <laughs> places <laughs> as opposed to like stammer around. So number one, don't lose hope. Um, there is always another thing that you can do. And I know people that have debilitating back pain or nagging knee problems or hip issues that like literally are, are having them face, you know, the type of questions like what, what does the rest of my life look like? And am I interested in experiencing that? And, okay. you know, I, I gotta say, like, I, I definitely had those thoughts, none that I would ever act on, but you can't help but think like, you know, at the time, you know, I'm 33, like, am I going to be Am I going to be in this much pain? It's only going to get worse, right? You can't let your mind go down that. So just you got to focus forward. Keep your eye on the prize. Now, in terms of day-to-day -day practice, Miyamoto Musashi, he did a really good job of illustrating, like if you're going to go into battle, which is kind of the way that I view life, you got to make sure that you have as, as clean a house as you can. Like, so, you know, not to sound preachy, but you got to get your shit together. And like, you know, we teach how you do anything is how you do everything. Yeah. And it's super, super intimidating to think that way when your life is in shambles and all you really want to try to find is a shortcut. Yeah. Because a shortcut out of any bad situation is the path you're going to take. You just, you need the situation to be better. So this concept of like a long-term commitment, you know, that can, that can, that's asking a lot from the person who has no money, no more meaningful romantic relationship, no end in sight in terms of like pain and injury and no plan. Like I get it hundred percent. Thankfully I've never had a drug addiction or anything like that, but I can imagine what it would be like. So I never look down on those type of people anymore. Something that, you know, as a young man, it's easy to look at people and say, Oh, you're a victim of your, of your, of your uh, circumstance. But as you get older, you realize like, Ooh, we're all products. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, so 
do your best with the single step that you can take right now. And that might just be stretching and it might just be cleaning up your diet Mm. or it might just be taking 15 minutes of pure focus, no social media, no bullshit to look into potential healing or treatment modalities. Um, it, it took a lot of tenacity and it was a pain in the ass and it, and I spent a lot of money, but I'm on track to like living a relatively pain-free and happy life again. And that's not something that I thought was going to be possible five years ago. Um, so it's interesting how, you know, you, you address one part of your life, be it, let's say your diet. And then all of a sudden your lifestyle changes a little bit. And then it's a little bit easier to make the next change, which is say getting into the gym regularly. Mm. And then before you know it, you're like, well, I'm already in the gym and my diet's kind of on point. So maybe I should start thinking about sleeping a little bit better. Like I'm tired from the gym and I don't feel like shit because of what I'm eating. So let's just work on actually getting our sleep under control. And before you know it, your relationships are improving too, because you're happier, you're more outgoing, you feel Mm. better. And then before you know it, you turn around and you're like, well, maybe all of this nonsense that everyone's been talking about in terms of, you know, higher meaning or spiritual connections, like your mind is, is freed up. You, you end up with like a capacity. And I think that, I think that injuries are actually really powerful opportunities to get your shit together. So if you do find yourself hurt to a point where you're questioning Jesus Christ, like, what am I going to do next? That might be the university or yeah, the universe just knocking and saying like, Hey, this is a great opportunity. You got some downtime, right? <laughs> Let's maybe pick something. And uh, years down the road, you get to start cashing in on those investments. And um, yeah, like I said, I'm just, you will learn, you will learn inevitably to be very grateful of those injuries if you handle them right. Maybe you don't, maybe they end up, you know, ruining your life or whatever, but I do feel like we have a choice. That is a, very poignant acorn. I appreciate okay. it. <laughs> I'll take your word for it. The findings of a kid, a, a big, a, a kid.